Hi, welcome to Bookie, which unlock big ideas from world bestsellers in audio, text, and mind map. Please download Bookie at Apple Store or Google Play with more features, get your free mind snack now. Today we will unlock the book capital in the 21st century. At first glance, you might wonder what this book has to do with Karl Marx's Das Kapital from the 19th century. Add to that the fact that the 21st century is only 20 years old, so why is this book called Capital in the 21st century? In fact, this book builds on the work of Marx's Das Kapital. We can think of Capital in the 21st century as a review of the core ideas in Das Kapital 100 years after its publication. The core idea of Das Kapital is that ultimately there are two problems that capitalism cannot solve. The first is the problem of infinite accumulation of capital which will lead to an ever-increasing gap between the rich and the poor. The second is the unequal distribution of income which will inevitably lead to social collapse and revolution. Capital in the 21st century provides a relatively objective evaluation of the value of Das Kapital. The book was an immediate sensation when it was published. Whether in the Western or the Eastern world, people were passionately discussing the book's ideas and in particular one question, does today's capitalism solve Marx's concerns about fairness? In other words are things really getting better over time? The premise of this book is a little like the fable of the emperor's new clothes. Mainstream economists have turned a blind eye to the increasingly unequal distribution of wealth. Divorced from social reality and focusing their energy on novel economic models they are much like the emperor without his clothes. The author of Capital in the 21st century like the innocent straight-talking child from the fable has a message for the economic emperors, despite your perceived pedigree you have missed the most important economic problem, income inequality. We might say that child in this fable is Thomas Piketty, a French economist. Piketty was a child prodigy, smart and very driven. He graduated with a PhD at 22 and became an assistant professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Department of Economics. Piketty found the work of previous American economists rather unconvincing after a number of years studying them. So at 25, Piketty returned to Paris and set out on his own to study capitalist theory. At 31, he was named France's best young economist of the year. At the age of 35, Piketty helped found the Paris School of Economics and served as its first dean. At the age of 43, Piketty wrote the now world-famous book Capital in the 21st century. The book was described by Paul Krugman, a Nobel Prize-winning economist as the most important economics book of the decade. The book argues that the rate of return on capital has always been higher than the growth rate. This has led to the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, and the gap between the rich and the poor widening. What is more frightening is that as the 21st century rentier class grows stronger, asset inequality will persist across generations as assets are handed down. In most European countries today, the top 10% of the population owns 60% of the total wealth. Within the top 10%, the top 1% owns 25% of the total wealth. Therefore, 
Piketty suggests that worldwide taxes on assets rather than income should be strengthened in order to address this inequality. To be clear, many of Piketty's claims are summed up by empirical formulas from observed data. This is also where many economists have criticized Piketty's work. The rest of our discussion will focus on the author's analysis of the central economics problem, Distributive Inequality, which is the book's greatest contribution to contemporary economic thought. Next, let's take a look at the core of capital in the 21st century in three parts. Part 1, Capitalism, doesn't really solve the problem of distributive inequality. Part 2, The Fundamental Contradiction of Capitalism. Part 3, How to Solve the Problem of Distributive Inequality. Okay, so let's start with the first part, capitalism doesn't really solve the problem of distributive inequality. Before we discuss this question, we need to answer the first question that may be on our minds. Why are so many of the world's leading economists today not paying attention to the growing inequality of distribution across the globe? If we go back to the 18th and 19th centuries, we find that income distribution was the primary concern of many of the leading economists. Thomas Malthus, David Ricardo, Karl Marx, and other esteemed scholars explored income inequality from various angles, but after the 1950s, the situation changed. Around this time, American economist Simon Smith Kuznets put forward his view that with economic growth the level of income inequality will rise initially. After a period of development it will gradually decline, showing an inverted U-curve on the chart known as the Kuznets curve. Kuznets notes a sharp decline in income inequality in the United States between 1913 and 1948. In the beginning, the high-income group which is the top 10% of earners in the United States earned about half of the nation's total annual income. But by the late 1940s, that number had plummeted by more than a dozen percent, and the top 10% of earners only pocketed less than 35% of the total annual income. That's roughly half the income of the poorest 50% of Americans. So it seems clear that income inequality had declined. Kuznets believed that the improvement of income inequality was not necessarily the result of policy intervention, but was instead a result of the internal logic of economic development. In the early years of industrialization, income inequality rose because only a small number of people benefited from the new wealth that industrialization brought. Later, as time progressed and more and more people shared in the fruits of economic growth, income inequality would decline of its own accord. As time went on, Kuznets' ideas seemed correct. Developed countries generally achieved high economic growth and all sectors of society continued to enjoy benefits. Some European countries began to act as a social state. The government assumed a larger social function through the use of a growing tax revenue. For example, Progressive taxation and welfare payments were adopted to achieve national prosperity and greatly reduce unequal income distribution. France's 30 glorious years only added to this optimism. Ricardo and Marx's doomsday predictions about the distribution of wealth in the 19th century looked more and more like an erroneous idea that would never be mentioned again. However, 
Hecate argues that Kuznets' seemingly realistic claim misreads long-term income distribution trends, because the curve is measured over such a short period of time, and is limited to the United States. If we look at income distribution throughout the whole world over a period of two to three centuries, Kuznets' inverted U-curve model of income distribution would not be validated. In fact, it is completely contradicted by reality. Therefore, Kuznets's inverted U-curve is merely an illusion that appeared against the backdrop of the Cold War. It seems people loved the idea that a market economy could really correct distributive inequalities all by itself. Piketty believes that Kuznets' ideas have largely misled subsequent economists. In actual fact, a U-shaped distribution curve most accurately describes the last three centuries. In the 19th century when Marx was writing Das Kapital, and even in the period before that, inequality of distribution was the most visible feature of capitalism. This is the left side of the U-curve. Inequality declined in most countries between 1910 and 1950, forming the bottom of the U-curve. This decline was mainly due to the First and Second World Wars and policies designed to cope with the impact thereof. Income inequality was also less pronounced between 1950 and 1980 thanks to post-war economic recovery growth. But from the 1980s, most governments had recovered from the war and began to change economic policy. Political forces again began to dominate the direction of economic distribution, and the tax and financial systems changed dramatically. Until the 1960s, for example, the top marginal rate of income tax in the United States remained above 90%, meaning that top earners would be taxed at 90% on some of their income. This tax then fell consistently through the 1980s, reaching as low as 28% after the Reagan Revolution. This loosened the restriction on capital and again allowed for inequality in income distribution to increase. However, this time it was even worse than in the 19th century. This is the right side of the U-curve. According to Piketty, an even more worrying danger lurks behind the U-curve. It is also one of the book's central ideas, the long-held forces that promote instability and inequality do not diminish or disappear on their own. After the freeing of capital in the 21st century we see an increasingly pronounced rentier class, including the phenomenon of super-inheritors and super-managers. In Piketty's book, national income comprises two parts, capital income and labor income. Capital income is the money produced by money. Labor income is the money produced by manual labor. In both cases, the inequality of distribution is very high. The emergence of super-inheritors reflects the inequality of capital income. If you have read European novels from the 18th and 19th centuries, such as Honoré de Balzac's Père Goyot and Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility, you will know that the inheritance of wealth was a popular storyline of the time. In Sense and Sensibility, John Dashwood inherits the vast Norland Park estate, bringing him £4,000 a year, more than 100 times the average income at the time. In Père Goyo, the title character sacrifices everything for his two daughters by giving them dowries of 500,000 francs each, earning 25,000 francs a year in interest or 50 times the average income of the day. At the same time, 
Balzac and Austin's protagonists were content to keep dozens of servants at their service. For the most part, these servants' names are never given, a sign of the depth of the divide between rich and poor. The Industrial Revolution reset the fortunes of these super-inheritors. Orson Welles described the situation in his film The Magnificent Ambersons. Super-inheritor George once enjoyed a rental income of $60,000 a year, 120 times the average income. But in the early 1900s, his business was crushed by the growing automobile revolution. He eventually had to find a job, earning a paltry salary of $350, much lower than the average. The subsequent war was a devastating blow to the rentier class, but this has changed in the 21st century where wealth inheritance has returned as a major source of inequality bringing the rentiers back into dominance. In France, for example, about half of the income of the top 1% earners today comes from inheritance. According to Piketty's estimates, for those born after 1970, inherited wealth will account for a quarter of their lifetime wealth resources. From this point of view, inheriting wealth is as important to modern people as it was to those born in the 19th century. This is capital income inequality. The phenomenon of the supermanager reflects the inequality of labor income. This seems to be a peculiar phenomenon among the Anglo-Saxons in Europe and the United States. These supermanagers are paid hundreds of times the average worker's salary and are unaffected by the global economy. Despite the fact that it is also almost impossible to pinpoint how much they are actually contributing to society. This phenomenon can be understood in terms of opportunity cost. Opportunity cost is the cost or loss of potential income that an enterprise pays for choosing one option over another. Imagine a big company with $10 billion in annual revenue. Should it pay its supermanager $1 million, $10 million, or $100 million. There is no reliable way to measure the marginal productivity of using these managers. That is there is no way to measure how much these managers contribute to the firm's revenues. From a psychological standpoint, the company is likely to prefer the manager with the highest price on the market. This is because from the company's point of view, if you miss hiring this manager, you may miss an opportunity to gain more revenue the opportunity cost is very high. In Piketty's view, this high opportunity cost also comes from the fact that managers often have the power to decide their own payment. So when the tax policy is not right, for example a progressive tax rate that is too low, supermanagers are willing to pay themselves ridiculous salaries, because most of the money will go into their pockets. On the other hand, if the progressive tax rate stands at 70% or 80%, they have no incentive to do so. So that's part one. Capitalism doesn't really solve the problem of distributive inequality. Cousinet's inverted U-curve is a historical illusion, and the positive U-shaped distribution curve is in fact the best way to represent the last three centuries. In today's world the income distribution gap is widening again, perhaps even more seriously than in the 19th century. Furthermore, the rentier class represented by the super-inheritors and super-managers are two groups worthy of attention. Today we are just sharing limited content. 
To unlock more key insights of world-class bestseller please download our app. Just search for B-O-O-K-E-Y at Apple Store or Google Play. Get your free mind snack now.